Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're talking about the continuing war between Israel and Hamas. We're recording on the day that President Biden touches down in Tel Aviv to show his support to Israel as it responds to the brutal attacks by Hamas 11 days ago. His visit has been overshadowed by the explosion at a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of people, compounding the humanitarian crisis in the Strip and enormously complicating the war of words on all sides about who was responsible. Israel denies it's responsible, saying that Islamic Jihad misfired a rocket, but the catastrophe has seen Jordan cancel a key summit between the president and regional leaders. Those in Gaza have said that it was Israel. All the while, we await the Israeli ground assault into Gaza. So we'll be talking about what President Biden hopes to achieve by visiting Israel and what is now realistically possible. We'll look at the humanitarian situation on the ground and the debate about whether aid can get in. And we'll look at the wider regional questions about whether this escalates and what the many countries in the region who do not want this to escalate can do. Joining me down the line from Jerusalem is Stephen Erlanger, the chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for the New York Times. Welcome. Thank you. Joining us from Amman is Sam Rose, the Director of Planning at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Welcome. Thanks, Bronwyn. Good to be here. Good to have you. And returning again is Dr. Elham Fakro, an Associate Fellow with our MENAP program. Welcome, Elham. Thank you. It's good to be back. Very good to have you. Very good to have you all. Stephen, I wonder if we can start with you and with President Biden's visit. He went ahead with it. Do you think that was well judged? Well, I think he had really no choice. Um, Had this explosion in this hospital happened the day before, maybe he wouldn't have come because his effort to be an honest broker was damaged by King of Jordan's cancelling the summit in Amman that Biden was planning to also go to after his visit to Israel. Abu Mazen Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, left Amman to go back to the West Bank. And um, so that all got scrapped. Biden will talk to them on the phone. But visually, symbolically, it's a big blow, I think, um, that he could not be seen talking to Arab leaders also. I must say I agree. I was talking to King Abdullah of Jordan on Sunday Do you think that he was right from his position, from Jordan's very difficult position in this, to cancel that meeting? I think he had to. I mean, it's just the reaction among his population, which is significantly numbers of Palestinians living in Jordan. Jordan tries to keep the number a secret. Um, They're angry. I mean, they're convinced it was an Israeli bomb, even though Israel denies it. Um, I think it would have been very awkward for the king, whose position can sometimes seem iffy, to have President Biden there. And I think President Sisi of Egypt was also kind of relieved not to be seen photographed next to President Biden on this particular day. Sam, the past 24 hours, how has that changed things on the ground? I mean, it's made things even more difficult. I mean, the situation that we're faced with in, in Gaza, already horrendous beyond belief, populations that have been through wars but have never been through anything 
quite like this. So I, th I think in Gaza there is, I mean, there's absolute devastation, but there's real, real shock about what, what happened overnight in, in the hospital, a very old hospital in, in Gaza, a hospital that UNRWA, the organization I work with, has worked with for, for 75 years. So the shock and, and outrage at the, at the, the, the loss of life and, and the attack, but this is just one more attack on the back of, of many more. So the feeling in Gaza of revulsion and shock, but also increased desperation. I mean, this understandably has been the focus of the political attention and, and, and the media lines, but the situation in Gaza now we're what day nine, day 10, as this continues, no aid is getting in, no supplies are getting in, no fuel, no water, the, the, the total blockade, the total siege or, you know, a population that's, that's already on it, on its knees has just, just, just continues. And, and, and I mean, oddly, you know, speaking to colleagues inside Gaza earlier today, we have 13,000 staff in, in, in Gaza, the organization I work for, the many of them down in Rafa. The situation in Rafa the past 24 hours has been oddly, oddly calm as people kind of more calm than it's been over, over the past days as people process what what's going on but but beyond within Gaza desperate and beyond Gaza a real sense a real concern of the regional escalations the regional considerations of this I'm in Jordan a day of rage or protest declared or, or, or day Stephen you're in Jerusalem and, and what's been happening in in the West Bank and and you know inside parts of Jerusalem as well this morning has been has been pretty horrific but you know concerns in Lebanon as well. So real, you know, on the next level up of a potential regional escalation of this. We'll come on to that point, Sam, about, about escalation in just a second, but just staying with the conditions in Gaza at the moment, is there any water at all? Um, there, were, there was a question of whether Israel had allowed water to start flowing again and then it hadn't. What is the actual position on that? Water. I mean, if Gaza depends on on Israel for for, for water, the, the the water supplies in Gaza are completely brackish. They're they're not suitable for drinking. The water plants, the desalination plants that there are in Gaza, they depend on fuel coming in from Israel. That fuel, the fuel lines have been stopped since eighth ninth of of October. Uh, water, there are three water pipes that come into Gaza from Israel. One of them ran for, I believe, about 24 hours, but this is only able to provide water for about 100,000 people in, a re in, in, in parts of Khan Yunis, which is one of the biggest cities inside Gaza. The, 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 all those water pipes need to flow for at least 24 hours to replenish the, the water supplies in Gaza. And right now we have people drinking brackish water, drinking dirty water. So real concerns of, of public health outbreaks on top of the misery. Thank you very much for that. Elham, this question of whether to let in aid and water is one of the most difficult ones for Israel, and it has been holding out, particularly on the aid side, saying, among other things, we don't know who the aid would go to, whether it be seized by terrorists once it got into Gaza, and the upshot being no aid has gone in, though we've all seen the pictures of the trucks lined up by Rafa. How do you think this diplomacy is playing out behind the scenes? There are a lot of countries involved. There are a lot of countries involved. Besides Israel, the other country involved is, of course, Egypt. Um, we have seen that aid on the Egyptian side of the border is waiting to be delivered as well, uh, but that border is shut. 
Um, Egypt used to allow limited aid to pass through the Rafah border crossing. Um, but following the first day of Israeli airstrikes, I mean, that's been closed. It's also because Israel has bombed the Gaza side of the Rafah border crossing. Um, in order for Egypt to open that up again, they want assurances that it, their own convoys won't be bombed. The other issue for, for Egypt is something much broader and much bigger here. It's the one of Palestinian refugees. Um, Egypt does not want to see a mass influx of Palestinians flowing into Egypt, flowing into Sinai specifically. Um, and the fears from Egypt's side, which were also echoed by Jordan, are that there might be a plan to have them settle in that region on a semi-permanent or permanent basis. Uh, Egypt has been very forceful in sending the message that it doesn't want to pay the price for um, Israel's bombardment or pay, pay the cost of that in terms of a refugee flow in Egypt. So I think what, what Egypt is looking for is reassurances on that front. They want to make sure that their own convoys won't be bombed. They want to make sure that there is not going to be an influx if, if that border is opened and that any aid flowing through is, is going to be secure. And I've certainly heard from many very senior people in the region, absolutely it is not going to happen that Egypt accepts refugees in much the same uh, about Jordan. Stephen, how does Israel calculate this very difficult question of whether to let in aid or not? It obviously does not want to be responsible for a humanitarian catastrophe. It says it's after dismantling Hamas and trying to get back its hostages. But the two issues have got conflated. It's a very complicated moral question, but also a strategic question. As Sam says, I mean, you, you need power, not just for water, but you need it for sewage. I mean, there, you need it for hospitals. So Israel has said it was would provide more water to Khan Yunus area. I'm not sure whether that's true. I hope it's true. The problem on the Egyptian border, Sisi doesn't want to let in refugees, but Israelis want to make sure whatever comes in, they can inspect because they're afraid it might have weaponry and so on. It is really complicated. One of Biden's big issues here, and Tony Blinken, his um, Secretary of State, has been working on this too, is to open up some kind of humanitarian corridor. The Americans expected it to be open by now. I think they're a little annoyed with President el-Sisi, to be honest, because they think he's the most problematic person in this equation, partly because he is so very much committed to not having a new group of Palestinian refugees. After all, Anwar Sadat didn't want Gaza. LCC hates Hamas. He hates the Muslim Brotherhood. He's afraid of radicals coming into Egypt. I mean, that's part of his fear, which he also wants to avoid. So it is really complicated. And, you know, the Israelis, I mean, they're so united in a way that Hamas needs to be dismantled that I think in some ways they they are not paying as much attention to humanitarian concerns as even they would normally do. Simply telling masses of people to get out of northern Gaza, you know, isn't a real answer. I mean, it's impossible for many people. It's awkward. I think it makes quite a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. It's not a great excuse. And the ICRC, which is quite neutral normally in these things, has been very clear that this kind of mass uh, movement and the cutting off of, of water, electricity, etc., is um, a violation of international humanitarian law. So this is why the Americans are pushing both Israel and Egypt. Um, I don't think it's resolved yet, sadly. 
No, it isn't. And the Muslim Brotherhood you mentioned, of course, was one of the sort of genesis of um, of Hamas. Could you just take us on a bit, Stephen, into the column you wrote about Qatar and its role in the hostages and how this complicates the um, Israel's calculations? But you, you were describing in a way I haven't seen that much of what Qatar is doing behind the scenes, specifically on the hostages. Well, Qatar has been a kind of interlocutor with Hamas and and Israel in the way Egypt used to be. Israel has allowed Qataris to send quite a lot of money into Gaza under this old conception that if you kept people going, kept Hamas in place, that somehow it would moderate itself and uh, the worst things wouldn't happen. That notion has been exploded. But the Qataris are talking to both sides. Hamas seems in some ways, sometimes you hear this, sometimes not, to at least be willing to release women, children, and foreigners from this group of hostages. But that hasn't happened yet either. And of course, the longer this goes on, the more delay in any Israeli ground invasion. It's not like they're not bombing Gaza very intensively, much more than I ever remember in the past. So the hostages for Hamas are leverage. um, And part of Israel's moral problem in its own soul is how much it's willing to sacrifice its own hostages. Normally, it's willing to trade thousands of prisoners for dead Israelis, let alone live ones. So, I mean, this this gives you a sense of the uh, way this conflict is simply different from previous ones. Sam, you mentioned the West Bank, and obviously one of the fears of countries in the region, including Jordan, is that this spreads uh, to the West Bank and beyond. And we have seen a lot of violence. It's been eclipsed in the media by what's happening in Gaza itself, but a lot of violence, a lot of Palestinians killed in the in the past week. What is your assessment of it there? No, as you say, the, what's happening in the West Bank gets forgotten about and, and understandably forgotten about. But in, in a way, this is, in, you know, it's already been one of the worst years on, on record in, in, in the West Bank in terms of uh, incursions, operations, inside refugee camps, in, in other areas, confrontations with settlers, etc. We've seen 61 uh, Palestinians in, in the West Bank killed as of yesterday since this started. And in a normal week, this would have been, you know, the, the highest numbers on, on on record. So that's what's been happening. So this would have been the news otherwise, and, and almost a complete closure in in the West Bank as well. And and and, and thousands upon thousands of Palestinian labourers who come into Gaza to work on a daily basis when the Erez border is open, who've been summarily dumped at checkpoints inside the the West Bank. So real fears that the situation there could could escalate. Elham, what's your thought about the northern border, Israel's northern border with with Lebanon. And again, there's been violence and rockets. Um, What is the risk that things escalate there as well? There's good news and bad news on that front. The the good news is that we remain in a situation where the initial attack from Hamas was not directly linked to Iran. For all the, the bloodshed that we've seen, that remains a positive point because it's mitigated the possibility of a broader escalation um, from the get-go between Israel and Iran or, or having the U.S. get involved in, in that. Um, the bad news, unfortunately, is that the more this goes on, the longer this continues, 
the more the the possibility expands for this to turn into something bigger involving other regional players, um, whether Hezbollah or beyond that. Um, Hezbollah is the most likely, I would say, next entrant into this conflict. Um, They did declare, I think, a day of anger, I believe, today in, in response to the bombing of the hospital. There have been low-level reprisals from Hezbollah in the form of rocket attacks, um, things like that, but nothing that has escalated too much. Um, I think indicating uh, that for now there is no escalation beyond this, but the risk of that really is severe. And uh, the longer this goes on, the more the risk presents itself. Do you regard Hezbollah in that as acting independently of Iran or being on call uh, for messages from Iran as to what it is it might do? So Iran, when when it does target Israel, prefers to do so through its proxies, uh, including through Hezbollah. So I think we have to keep that in mind. I think there will be some level of guidance, of course. Stephen. Well, I covered the 2006 war um, and Nasrallah, Sheikh Nasrallah, who runs Hezbollah, said afterwards he regretted it. This is a famous point. Just just to expand it for a second. He regretted it. Why? He regretted it because of the damage done to his own organization and to southern Lebanon and to Hezbollah's uh, credibility inside Lebanon. They've restored it. There's quite a lot of money. But, you know, Hezbollah exists for Iran as a deterrent against Israel for Iran. It doesn't exist for the Palestinians. Iran, the line goes, will fight the last Arab. And um, I think they have no real interest in in destroying southern Lebanon in a big way. I think if it happens this time, the element of surprise is gone for Hezbollah. And the amount of, of, of mutual destruction that would ensue, I think, I hope, keeps a mutual deterrence. And also the fact that the Americans have sent two carrier groups into the Eastern Mediterranean as a message to Iran, as Joe Biden said, don't do it. So my hope is no one will do it. But as you know, war has its own momentum and so does anger. And, um, you know, I don't predict anything at this point. Well, thank you for that. I, let's not try and predict anything, but try and nonetheless look ahead a bit into the next few days even. And we've been talking, um, and much of the coverage of this has been uh, talking as if an Israeli invasion into Gaza is imminent and that Israel is, is simply waiting to plan this in its pursuit of Hamas and the Hamas leaders. Is it conceivable that that doesn't happen? Sam, what is the kind of conversation around where you, where you are? There's a sense that the visit of President Biden has delayed any plans that may have been a thought. I think there's a sense as well that, you know, that, that it's only gradual but increasing outrage and concern that's creeping in around the, the welfare of, of, of the population, the civilian population inside Gaza would also be, be a factor. But you have real, real concerns that this is just a matter of, of, of when and not if. But Ilham, it's a, an environment, isn't it, where it is extraordinarily difficult to fight any kind of war, yeah. let alone the searching for Hamas leaders and possibly hostages that Israel says is its goal. Absolutely. So, I mean, just to go back a little bit on your previous question, the, the main purpose of President Biden's trip to the region 
um, at least what we're seeing publicly has been to reassure Israel. That's what we're seeing front and center, um, particularly with his statements. Um, he is offering unconditional support. And if there is discussion on a, a ground invasion, it's not clear that President Biden is, is going to stand in the way of that unless he's doing so privately. Publicly, what we are seeing is just unconditional absolute support for Israel's actions, which is evident. But coming to your next point, I mean, there's no doubt, and Israel knows this, that any ground invasion would cost Israeli lives, not to mention um, plenty of Palestinian lives as well. It would be an additional escalation um, with unknown consequences. Um, uh, you know, we've said before the extent to which Gaza is is packed with civilians. Um, so a ground invasion would have a huge toll, and it's unclear how successful that would be. Hamas surely has prepared for this, knowing this possibility could happen. So it, it, it adds another unknown and would constitute a further escalation in terms of lives lost. Sam, from your knowledge of, of Gaza, your very detailed knowledge of Gaza, what would the fighting actually be like? I supposing Israeli forces go in in pursuit of these Hamas leaders, presumably with some intelligence guiding that, possibly in pursuit of the, the hostages. Can you give us a sense of how difficult that would be? I mean, it would be horrific in terms of the human toll, no doubts about it. Large swathes of northern Gaza and Gaza City have been destroyed. I mean, I think the the the, uh, the estimates to dare are 25% of all housing stock has sustained some level of damage. But Gaza is is a very urban, very concentrated. I mean, you know, one of the most densely populated places on, on earth. It's narrow alleys, it's refugee camps, and these aren't Intensive refugee camps, these are very poor built-up up neighborhoods. It would be a catastrophe on, on the, the human level. I mean, further destruction, further misery, further mass loss of life. And we've seen this in other situations. Stephen, you mentioned covering the, the, the war in Lebanon in 2006. These are things that aren't over in a matter of, of, of days. They take their own course and they become very complicated and, 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 and very bloody and they don't ease a resolution of it. And the risk on the humanitarian side is that if this were entry from, from northern Gaza, which appears to be what it is, that it would be further forced population movements to put further pressure on the the Egyptian border or, or, or what's being referred to as the safe zone, which is the United Nations we categorically reject because it isn't safe in any way, shape, or, or, or form. And, and, and I think, uh, Bronwyn, one, one final point to mention on this is uh, that people are moving back north in Gaza. That's the reports that we're getting, that the south of Gaza, Gaza is poor in general, but the south of Gaza is poorer, slightly more rural, and people are already moving back north. So the idea that, that this area has been evacuated of, of, of civilians is simply a fallacy. People either don't want to or aren't able to move in many cases. Stephen, is this even a possible military attempt for Israel? Sure. Look, I mean, I've been in Gaza during the wars. I've been in, in 2012 and in 2014 and 2006. It's horrible. And, you know, Hamas is prepared, but Hamas, you, you know, lives among civilians. Uh, they actually, in this cruel way, the more civilian casualties, the more moral power they feel they have, and the more angry the rest of the world gets. Hamas has tunnels. It's like this underground city. They don't always wear uniforms. In fact, mostly they don't. It's very difficult 
to tell who's a fighter and who's not a fighter until someone pops up with an RPG. I suspect the Israelis won't go in like the cavalry, but I think they will go in. I mean, this is, you know, as Israelis keep saying, they lost proportionately 10 times the number of people that America lost in 9-11, and America went after Afghanistan and Osama bin Laden, and it took months and months and months, and Israel will do it for months and months and months if they need to. I worry there's going to be enormous bombing, including these big bunker buster bombers to collapse the tunnels underneath. But I've seen Hamas store munitions in hospitals and in mosques. I've seen it myself. I mean, this is, it's not a state. It doesn't act like a state. It doesn't behave the same, the same way. And it has, you know, it's, I'm sure, prepared for an Israeli invasion. But can it be done? Of course it can be done with a lot of sacrifice and a lot of collateral damage. I mean, Fallujah got done. It's not impossible to do these things. It's just horrible to think about. And then what? Because you've mentioned the two examples that hang over all talk of an invasion, uh, Afghanistan and then Iraq. Yes, you can remove leaders, you can kill them. But then what? Would Israel uh, would, would be in possession of Gaza? What would it do with it? Look, they don't want to reoccupy Gaza, but if they just remove Hamas and do nothing to create a political settlement that establishes some sustainable peace, they will not have succeeded. I mean, the military side is half the battle. I mean, I think, you know, they tried in 2005 to get out and they gave it to the Palestinian Authority, but without support. They didn't negotiate with the Palestinian Authority. They just threw the keys into the street. They can't do that again. I mean, I think the, you know, whether peacekeeping troops come in, whether UN can come in, I don't think Arab countries want to do peacekeeping inside Gaza. That would look terrible for them. But at some point, I mean, people are thinking about what to do next, but I don't think there's any, any conclusion. There's a UN group, I'm sure you know, called UNSO, which is a sort of border organization. It's a truce observer group that actually still has a legal mandate for Gaza, even though it left in, I think, 96 after the Oslo Accords. But I mean, there are lots of people thinking about how Gaza could be administered afterwards, not by the Israelis, but by the Palestinian Authority in some form. But I think it would also require a new set of push by the West, by the Saudis, by the Israelis towards some kind of better political settlement for the Palestinians in the West Bank too. I mean, this is a big moment where paradigms are falling apart. And and perhaps if the Israeli government falls after this, which is very likely if there's a, a new government, there really may be some new thinking. That's my hope. It's probably misguided hope, because most hopes are misguided, but that's my hope. Stephen, I was thinking as you were talking, um, and have thought, uh, hearing a lot of uh, people, um, leaders in the region, talking about this, whether there really is a possibility that a political settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, the thing that has eluded the world for many decades, actually could come out of this, and that certainly would count as a hopeful thing. But it, um, 
more it seems to me that it, it is the um, the only possible resolution one can see of this in the end, but it seems incompatible with the rage and anger that is there at the moment on both both sides. Elham, can you see any kind of political settlement coming out of this? It's very difficult to see this at the moment, but I do agree with you that that's the only inevitable outcome eventually. At the moment, um, I'm in Bahrain. What we're seeing in the region is huge amounts of anger towards Israel and the United States. I would say it's approaching levels of the Second Intifada. Um, that's the last time I think people were this angry towards Israel, towards the United States. Um, we've seen protests coming out today um, in support of the Palestinians, large protests across the Arab world. The same was the case last Friday. I think we can expect this to continue. Um, but I think when, when talking about an eventual peace process, which has to happen, the question becomes who is going to lead this? Um, there's talk of Gulf states being involved now that some of them have relations with Israel, talk of other Arab states being involved. I think the United States remains central to this process. Um, and I think that's something that President Biden really shouldn't forget is America's historic role in leading this process, as, as imperfect as it's been. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now today is this kind of unequivocal support for Israel. At least in the Arab world, the view is that this really needs to be tempered a little bit. It needs to be moderated. He needs to kind of come a little bit closer to, to the middle point, um, talk more about the humanitarian implications in Gaza, gain a bit more favor back from, from Arab leaders who have been really frustrated with this, and eventually put the U.S. back on course as the leader of a peace process rather than as the leader of, of an expanding normalization process, which has nothing to do with the actual conflict. Sam, is there any talk in UN circles, just briefly, of uh, the UN having some kind of peacekeeping role, or is that premature? Sure, the, the, the focus now is on getting the borders open, getting a ceasefire sorted and providing to the life-saving needs of, of, of the population. But I'd echo what Elham said about the, the anger and this, this growing you know, feeling that this is the safety and the protection of, of one set of people at the expense, potentially, of the entire region and, and, and complete lack of compassion and humanity and, and, and moral compass. That's been the evolution really over the past 24 hours with what people are seeing. Stephen, perhaps you can pull this together for us right at the end, this question that Elham put there of whether all roads lead back to the US after all these years and all these regional talks and all these other countries being involved. Is it still the US with the influence to bring about some kind of resolution of this? Well, I think Ellen's right. I mean, this notion that the United States could leave the East alone, uh, it doesn't happen. There really is no one else to do it. I mean, they've been very involved with the Saudis trying to help Israel figure out its relationships with the Gulf. And one can imagine a different conception that involves a kind of you know, relatively moderate Arab coalition that will help push this process forward. One can imagine it, but in my view, I agree with Ellen, the U.S. will have to lead it. Well, with that, we'll have to bring it to an end. Chatham House has made the point many times that although the U.S. and the U.K. chose to downgrade the Middle East in their published national security strategies, it does not mean that the Middle East goes away. A big thank you then to all my guests, Stephen Erlanger, Elham Fakro, and Sam Rose. Do follow them all on Twitter, 
The links are in the show details. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, and through our social media. And do like, follow, subscribe. Do leave us a review. Uh, I read them, and so does the rest of the team. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events, and we have a lot of them coming between now and the end of the year, or to become a member, we'd love to have you. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org, and you can find there the work of all our programs, including the many things that we are publishing on the Middle East at the moment. So goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. See you next week.